Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with How Stuff Works and iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And we are continuing our series on Boeing. And before we get into it, I just want to tell you guys, technically, I probably could have done maybe two or three or four more episodes about Boeing because the company has done a lot of stuff. Uh, There's been a lot of controversy around some of those things. And all of those elements are pretty deep and and could – they could all justify an episode all by themselves. But rather than turn this into the Boeing podcast, I thought I would kind of sum – up things in this third part. I'm going to have to skip over a lot of stuff. And if you guys are really interested, I can always go back and do a couple of episodes that really focus on some of the individual stories on a more um, granular level. But rather than have this series go on indefinitely, we're just going to press about 70 years of history together into one episode. So considering the first two episodes were 30 years, we're going to be taking some liberties. But in our last episode, we looked at a very busy time for Boeing because the company had become a major part of the war effort for the United States during World War II. And we also looked at how Boeing continued to develop both military and civilian aircraft after the war was over. And we finished with a discussion about the development of the 707, which was Boeing's first mass-produced commercial jet, so passenger jet, like the kind we have today. Now, as I mentioned in that episode, the development process for the 707 represented an enormous investment, a huge risk for Boeing. It took up nearly all the profits Boeing had made since World War II had ended. And making the matter more fraught, was that the Haviland Comet, the British-made commercial jet that had inspired Boeing President William Allen to take this big risk in the first place, well, it ended up having some catastrophic problems of its own. And by the time those problems became evident, Boeing had already committed to building a commercial jet. So within the first year of operation, that would be 1952, the Comet started to have some issues. Now, the first accident only caused a couple of minor injuries. And in that incident, the Comet, the airplane, failed to become airborne at the end of a runway. So it ran the whole length of the runway, could not take off, and it ended up crossing into really rough ground. But people got bumped up, but that was the worst of it. However, a similar accident in 1953 was much more serious. Uh, Again, a comet failed to take off from a runway, this time in in Pakistan, and it collided with an embankment at the end of the runway. All five members of the crew died, and six passengers did as well. It was the first commercial jet accident that had fatalities. Uh, And obviously, this was a huge deal. Then in 1954, on two separate occasions, Comet aircraft broke apart in mid-flight. The Comet fleet was grounded as a result. Uh, The aircraft lost its certificate of airworthiness, and a full inquiry was made and an investigation to find out what exactly was happening. The investigation actually found that the aircraft's frame was suffering fatigue, and that led to structural failures, particularly around the windows. Uh, It was that the the pressurized cabins, you know, that air pressure inside the plane is much greater than the air pressure outside. 
in high altitudes. And so you have this force pushing outward on the interior of the plane, and that push, particularly at the windows, was what was causing fatigue on the airframe. And thus you had structural failures in flight with a couple of these comet flights, and that caused in-flight accidents. Essentially, the planes would just completely break apart uh, with all people aboard lost as a result. Now, all of this was going on, as I said, as Boeing had already committed to creating its own commercial jet aircraft. So one of the big challenges Boeing faced was creating an aircraft that was demonstrably safe to travel in. And then a second challenge was to convince the general public that this was the case. And travelers were understandably concerned after the high-profile accidents involving the world's first commercial jets. So Boeing produced a film titled, this is such a charming name, Operation Guillotine. It was a, a, a film that was trying to counteract this public reservation of flying aboard a commercial jet. And in the film, Boeing had test footage where they had uh, uh, aircraft chambers that were pressurized. Uh, this was inside a controlled environment. So this wasn't like flying in the, you know, over the United States or something. And in the first demonstration, they showed a pressurized airplane fuselage, like a, a regular propeller airplane-type fuselage. And the fuselage gets pierced by two metal blades. So this is like a scenario where a propeller failure has happened, and part of a propeller breaks off and, and breaks into the fuselage of a plane. And that caused rapid depressurization, and the fuselage broke apart in that test. But then Boeing showed a similar test with the fuselage of their 707. And they had five blades pierce this structure, not just two. But in their test footage, they show that the Boeing fuselage can hold together even with this, this uh, breach. And some air was escaping, obviously, because there was, you know, a, a now a, a hole in the plane. It's not like you can just not have air leak out if you have a differential in pressure on one side versus the other. Uh, but it did show that the Boeing design was far more resilient to damage that was going to hold together even in a catastrophic event like that than the traditional aircraft, which is an interesting way to build passenger confidence, to be sure. But it was one of the things they tried. The 707 was meant to be a mid to low range commercial jet. And I mentioned in the previous episode that Pan Am had put in an order for 20 707s, but Pan Am also hedged its bets. It wasn't going all in on Boeing. It also put in an order for 25 DC-8s from Boeing competitor Douglas. Boeing was able to manufacture the 707 faster than Douglas could build the DC-8s. And Boeing would also customize the aircraft itself. They would have different loadouts and different variants of the 707. And because of those customizations, there's not really one set of measurements I can give you for a 707. The same is true for all the different 700 series aircraft that Boeing would produce. There are different variations of those, and they all have different stats. But here's how the first 707 stacked up. It was 145 feet, one inch long. That's about 44.2 meters. And it had a wingspan of 130 feet, 10 inches, or 39.9 meters. The fuselage, so, you know, like the, the body of the aircraft, had a width of 12 feet, 4 inches, or 3.8 meters. And while it was meant as a mid-range aircraft, its first commercial flight was actually between New York City and Paris, France, though it did stop once in Newfoundland to refuel. The 707 could travel faster and hold more passengers than the Comet could. 
And there were several variations of it. There was the 707-120, the 707-120B, the 707-220, the 707-320, the 707-420, and then there was the 720 and the 720B variants. So those two 720s, you might wonder, well, what's up with those? Because they didn't follow that 707 pattern. These were meant to be short to medium range jets. And they were also meant to service airports that had shorter runways that couldn't accommodate the larger versions of the 707. So these were slightly smaller uh, versions of those, those commercial jets. Now, differences between some of these variants could sometimes be tricky to spot. Some of them were essentially the same design, but had different engines. So unless you were really, really observant and had a up close and personal look at the interior of some of the workings of the jets, you wouldn't be able to necessarily tell on site the difference without seeing a designation. Now, Boeing would manufacture more than 1,000 of the 707 aircraft across all families over the decades, and the 707 would be in continuous production from 1954 to 1977. It helped establish commercial jet travel across the world, not just for Boeing, but for all companies. And before long, more people were traveling by air than by sea, which was a first. Because while air travel had been established for several decades, it was incredibly expensive and it was very slow if you're using a propeller aircraft. Uh, and it, there was this perception of real danger. So a lot of people preferred to travel by uh, boat rather than by airplane. But jets were a different story. It also established something else. The 707 had exit doors on the front left and rear left side of the plane, so the fore and the aft of the plane. Uh, this would become a standardized configuration for Boeing's commercial jets, and ultimately it would mean that other manufacturers would have to follow suit because airports would accommodate this particular configuration with the design of their jetways. So if you've flown into a major airport and you notice that all the jets are pulling up to their jetways the same way, it's because you know, Boeing kind of established this, and then it sort of became the standard. While Boeing was hard at work on the 707, the company's aircraft also made history in another way. On September 1st, 1953, a Boeing B-47 Stratojet refueled another B-47 in mid-flight. It was the first time a jet was being used as a tanker. The arrangement relied upon what is called a probe and drogue refueling system. So there are two main aerial refueling methods, and by that I mean two main methods of refueling a plane in air, not a way of refueling a mermaid. One is to use a rigid boom extension that connects two aircraft together in mid-flight for the purposes of fuel transfer. It allows for a very high-speed fuel transfer because you're using a rigid boom um, when you use something that has flexibility to it, it actually slows down the transfer of fuel a little bit. However, that system requires both aircraft to fly pretty close to each other. And if something should go wrong, the boom, because it's solid, could cause serious damage to one or both aircraft. So it's riskier. The probe and drogue method is slightly more safe. The aircraft in need of refueling flies ahead of the tanker aircraft. And the refueling plane extends a hose that is otherwise retracted so that it would be flush against the aircraft. So it starts to let this hose out, and the hose trails behind the aircraft. And at the end of this hose is a basket. And the trailing aircraft, the one that has all the fuel aboard it that's going to refuel the first plane, has the probe. It's kind of like a, a, you know, a, a, a 
fuel pump that you would use at a gas station. The the pump part where you plug that, you know, you slot that into your uh, gas tank. That's kind of what the probe is. The pilot guides this probe into the basket, and that connects the probe to the hose, and refueling can begin. Afterward, the tanker pilot can retract the probe from the drogue, the basket, um, and the pilot of the newly refueled plane retracts the drogue, winds it back up. And then you've got a newly refueled plane in flight and never had to land to refuel. And I'm just going to say this. I find the fact that pilots can fly so steady as to allow for in-flight refueling to be absolutely mind-blowing. I'm amazed at that level of precision and skill, and also the ingenuity required to create the refueling system in the first place. Human beings can be pretty astounding sometimes. And I, uh, I, I of course, I say that as a human being. I, I'm not some sort of trans-dimensional alien making observations or anything. So let's get back to Boeing and stop asking silly questions, <clears throat> human. By 1955, Boeing had made some huge accomplishments. The Dash 80 had already had its first flight at that point, and Boeing was producing the KC-135 Stratotanker aircraft, which was based off this Dash 80 design. And it was also at this point working on that 707 commercial jet, which again was also based off the Dash 80. So you can think of the Dash 80 as the parent to both the KC-135 Stratotanker and the 707. And those two aircraft were not identical. They were actually very different from each other, but they were both based off that same ancestor. Now, Boeing was still building military aircraft like the B-47, and it had begun production on the B-52A, so things were going pretty well for the company. In 1956, on September 28th, William Boeing who was the founder of the company but had, you know, sold off all of his interest in it years before, passed away. He had a heart attack aboard his yacht. I could only hope that I go the same way. But it was three days before his 75th birthday, and I'd prefer to last a little longer than that. But other than that, I think um, passing away on board your luxury yacht, that's a pretty baller way to go if you gotta, if you got to choose, I think. On May 15, 1958, the U.S. Air Force put in an order for three of the new 707s, specifically the 707-120s, because you remember there are all those variations, and these planes would receive a new designation, which would be VC-137A. They were meant for something very special. They'd be used for transportation for the president and for other high-ranking government officials. And when the president steps aboard one of those planes, that plane then becomes known as Air Force One for as long as the president is on it. And that's a fun bit of trivia. Air Force One does not refer to a single plane. It's the designation that we give whatever plane happens to be carrying the president at any given time. So there's no one Air Force One. It's whatever plane the president happens to be on, that is Air Force One. These planes were not the first to be used for presidential transportation. I mean, they were customized specifically for that, but they weren't even the first for that. They were the first from Boeing. Um, they were also not the first planes to be called Air Force One when the president was aboard, but it was the first time Boeing would be the company providing planes for that purpose, and they would continue to do so. Boeing has frequently provided, well, sold planes to the United States government for use as uh, presidential transportation. On October 10th, 1958, Boeing landed a contract to assemble an intercontinental ballistic missile, or ICBM, called the Minuteman. 
This was named after the members of the American militia who were participating in the militia leading up to the Revolutionary War. They were so-called the Minutemen because they had to be ready to deploy within a minute of getting a message. The ICBM would rely upon solid rocket fuel, which would also allow those missiles to stand ready for use indefinitely, as opposed to the liquid-fueled rockets of that time, which had to be fueled pretty much immediately before use, and thus required more time to actually deploy. Now, it would come about that they would find workarounds for that limitation for liquid fuel, but at the time, that was not really, you know, those, those were your options. Now, while the Minuteman ICBM had been proposed earlier, the U.S. military originally dismissed those proposals. And the, the idea was that they had already started development on other missiles. So they thought, well, it doesn't make sense for us to devote even more resources to building different types of missiles. We're already building missiles. But then there was a report, which was later found to be inaccurate, that suggested that the Soviet Union was actually far ahead of the United States in missile production and deployment. And that pretty much scared the dickens out of the U.S. government, and soon the Minuteman was given the fast track for production, and Boeing was in business. In 1959, Boeing began development on what would have been a predecessor to the space shuttle. I think I referred to this a little bit in the space race episodes I did a year ago. It was called the X-20 and was later known as the Dynasaur. D-Y-N-A-S-O-A-R. It was a space plane meant to be able to return to Earth as a sort of plane or glider like the space shuttle. So this was different from the Gemini, or Gemini if you prefer, and Apollo designs. Those were ballistic spacecraft, which meant they would hurtle to Earth like, you know, a, a, just a, a cannonball and then deploy a parachute to slow them down as well as angle themselves properly so that, you know, their heat shield was at the right angle. And then eventually they would land in the water. From 1959 to the early 1960s, Boeing would work on the dinosaur design, and hundreds of millions of dollars were dedicated to this development from the U.S. government. But ultimately, the U.S. government decided that the ballistic approach, which was much less expensive and technically less complicated, would get priority. So the project was canned in 1963. It's a shame, too, because it was actually a pretty cool design. I'll talk about it a bit more after the break. But first, let's go and thank our sponsor. The dinosaur looked pretty darn cool in a chunky way. It measured 35 and a half feet or 10.8 meters long and had a delta wingspan of nearly 21 feet. Boeing had built a mocked up model of it and was working on building out a prototype when the project got junked. The official decision was that the spacecraft would have no military applications, so it would be useless as a military vehicle. You couldn't use it for, uh, you know, wartime. You couldn't use it for reconnaissance. So there was no practical use of it in that sense. And it was considered to be too expensive to be of any practical use as a research and science vehicle. So there was no practical scientific application. And so the dinosaur went the way of the dinosaurs. And yes, I was waiting to make that joke for ages. I couldn't wait for the break to be over. In the spring of 1960, Boeing acquired the Vertol Aircraft Corporation, and it formed a new division within Boeing. Vertol was a play on the phrase vertical takeoff and landing. So it's this part of Boeing's company that develops VTOL aircraft, like helicopters and related vehicles. Um, 
they actually would be involved in developing lots of helicopters. I don't talk about a lot of them in this episode. That's one of the things that I'm having to skip over quite a bit. But they had a hand in designing several helicopters, both for the military and for civilian use. In late 1961, Boeing would land a contract to produce the first stage booster for the Saturn V, which would be used in the Apollo program. That's pretty darn cool. And the following year, Boeing would test its first hydrofoil vehicle, the High Point. So what's a hydrofoil? Well, as the name suggests, it has to do with water, you know, hydro, water. And a foil is a surface that uh, provides lift. So a hydrofoil is a surface that when it moves in water acts as a lifting surface. So it's sort of like the wings on an airplane, except of course an airplane moves through the air, hydrofoil moves through the water. And of course, water and air both obey fluid dynamics. So if you've ever seen a boat that travels really fast and it's on top of skis that are on these long struts, that's a hydrofoil. And Boeing would go on to produce hydrofoil vehicles for the Navy, as well as for other uses. And hydrofoil boats can travel pretty darn fast, and it's largely because they have decreased drag. There's reduced surface area making contact with the water, so they can go much faster than boats that have their full surface, or, you know, the full lower surface in contact with the water. In 1962, Boeing began producing 727 aircraft. So I guess now it's a good time to just do a full rundown on the 700 family of commercial jets and get a general timeline for each and describe how they are different. Uh, I'd like to get them all out of the way collectively, though obviously obviously we're going to have to come back for the 737 MAX design to close out this episode. But yeah, let's let's do all the 700s because if I just keep on going through the timeline, it's just going to get tedious anyway. So... It all started with the 707. That got things moving. And then next was the 720. That was the variation on the 707 that was designed for the shorter flights and smaller airports. And then after that came the 727. Now, depending on the layout, it could hold between 149 to 189 passengers max. And it had three engines. It had an engine under each wing. And then the third engine was located at the tail of the aircraft. It was built into the, the tail of the fuselage. And it was also intended for short to medium routes. The original 737 would follow in the late 1960s. And the original 737 had twin engines. It was also meant for short to medium length trips. And Boeing has updated this particular line many, many times. There are several variations of the 737. It's the 737, 737 Classic, 737NG, 737 Crystal, 737 Low Calorie. I might be making some of these up. No, but there really is a 737NG. That stands for Next Generation, just like Star Trek. And uh, that one was a little bit more narrow than the original 737. And, of course, there's the 737 MAX that we hear about in the news currently. There are several variants of these jets even within these families, and each variant has slightly different stats and passenger layouts. And the variety means it's really hard to talk about 737s as a collective because there's so much variation between them. There are versions that had a maximum capacity of 85 passengers, and there are versions that could carry up to 215 passengers. That's a pretty big difference there. The 737 would go on to be Boeing's biggest commercial success. It is the highest selling commercial jetliner model of all time. Though again, there are a ton of variations and that consideration is taking all of them and putting them in a big collective group. They've been in continuous production since their introduction in the 1960s. So a very 
big working horse for Boeing. The Boeing 747 was the very first aircraft to receive the descriptor of jumbo jet, and it is a beast of an aircraft. Now, I have never flown on a 747, but I have toured a grounded 747. They have one at Delta's Air Museum in Atlanta, Georgia. And the 747 is a wide-body airplane. If you were to look at one in profile, you notice that at the front end of the airplane, it has a hump on the top of it. And that's because the forward section of the plane has a second floor. It's a double-decker uh, passenger cabin. So you actually have a staircase inside the cabin that leads up to the second floor. Uh, it can get real swanky up there. Uh, the, uh, the, at least the model that I went on, they had the, the first class set up in the upper deck and it was pretty nifty. So when this 747 debuted in 1970, it was known as the commercial jet with the largest capacity for passengers. And it would actually hold on to that title for nearly 40 years. There's also several variations of the 747, and the 747-8 is still in production today. The 757 is kind of a study in contrast to the 747. It first went into production in 1981, and it's a narrow-body plane, has a single aisle down the passenger cabin. It's got two engines, and Boeing generally intended it to uh, take the place of the older 727s for those short-to-medium flight routes. It can hold nearly 300 passengers in at least some of the configurations for the 757, and it makes it Boeing's largest single-aisle passenger jet. Uh, this one, however, is no longer in production. Then you have the 767. That's a mid to long range aircraft. It has a wide body and has two jet engines. And there are lots of variations of this one too that allow for a maximum passenger capacity of up to 375 passengers, depending upon the variation. Obviously, not all build outs can hold that many. Uh, in fact, some of them top out at closer to 180 passengers, which is less than half of that other maximum. Like the 757, the 767 went into production in 1981, and it shares many design components with the 757. And it's so similar in operation that the FAA said that pilots who had the proper type of rating to fly a 757 could also fly a 767 because the differences, at least in operation, were so few and far between. They were practically the same aircraft by operation, even though by actual specs, like by width and length and all that, they were very different. The 70, 767 was much wider than the 757. Boeing still makes the 767 aircraft today, uh, but most of those are not being used as passenger jets. They're being used for other stuff. Then we have the 777, the 777. It's a wide-body, long-range aircraft that first went into production in 1993. It is the largest twin-jet commercial aircraft in the world, and some variations of the 777 can hold nearly 400 passengers. It's also the first Boeing commercial aircraft to have computer-mediated controls, which is going to become part of our story toward the end of this episode, too, for the 737 MAX. The 777 became a big success for Boeing, and airlines ordered enough of them to make the 777 the best-selling wide-body commercial jet of all time. It beat out the record that was previously held by the 747. And as I record this, Boeing is working on the latest generation of the 777 family of aircraft with the 777X, which should start flying the skies in 2020. Uh, one of those is the 777-9, 
And it's a huge, huge plane. It can hold up to 414 passengers. Big plane. And now we're up to 787, a.k.a. the Dreamliner. It's another wide-body jet, though it's in the mid-size range, so it's not as big as the 777s. And it went into production in 2009. It's meant to replace the 767. So Boeing's goal was to create a commercial jet that could fill the same role as the 767 but have much better fuel efficiency. And they did this with lots of different changes in design, including using mostly composite materials for the aircraft, which helped cut down on the aircraft's weight, which therefore cuts down on the amount of fuel it needs to stay in the air. It can hold up to 335 passengers, depending again upon the layout, and it also can travel on long-distance routes. Oh, and then there is one other one I should mention, the 717. So why would I leave that one last? Why would I work up from 707 all the way up to 787, then go back to 717? Well, it's because Boeing didn't actually design the 717. The Boeing 717, at least the commercial jet version of the 717, there was a Boeing military aircraft that had a 717 designation back in the 1950s, but that's not what we're talking about here. Anyway, it wasn't a Boeing aircraft originally. It used to have the name MD-95, and it was designed by Boeing's competitor, McDonnell Douglas, in the mid-90s. But before the plane could go into production, something else would happen, and I'll get back to that in a little bit. All right, so that's the family of Boeing commercial jets, and honestly, each of those could merit their own episode. There are lots of stories about each of them. There are stories about the different crazy configurations the airlines would have for those aircraft. There are stories about accidents with those aircraft. Um, the 747 has had a lot of accidents, not not to say that it, the 747 itself was at fault. There were plenty of accidents that were judged to be human error, not mechanical error. But there's, you know, there's just so much to talk about. And again, we've got to end this series at some point. So I'm just going to call an audible here. Also, it's good to remember a few general notes about these planes. First, the number designation doesn't indicate size. This took me a long time to figure out when I was a kid. I just assumed that every number bigger was meant there was going to be a bigger plane. So when I heard I was going to fly on a 767, I thought, wow, it's going to be even bigger than the 747. And I was wrong. Still getting over that. Also, uh, it, another is that the variations within a single family in the 700 series can be significant. It's not just about the seat layout. It's also about the aircraft's dimensions, which engines it has, and other design elements. And these differences at least according to Boeing, aren't so great as to necessitate a totally new designation. You wouldn't call it a different type of plane, but it does mean that not all 747s are alike, for example. And there are a lot of these Boeing aircraft out there in the wild. Boeing delivered more than 9,000 737 aircraft alone. That's if you lump all the versions of the 737 together. If you do that, then it's delivered more than 9,000 of them to customers. That's nearly half of all the commercial aircraft that Boeing has delivered since it started producing the 700 family. So it's pretty impressive that the 737 takes up almost 50% of all the planes Boeing has ever sold, at least in, in the commercial jet world. Okay, so back to the timeline and Boeing in the 1960s. Got to finish this episode out before the number seven ceases to mean anything to me anymore. 
Boeing would continue to play a crucial role in the space race, landing the contract with NASA to build the Lunar Orbiter spacecraft. Now, these were unmanned spacecraft that would fly around the moon and map out sites of the moon that could potentially be used by the Apollo program for landing sites. Boeing would work with other companies to produce the spacecraft, and the mission was a success and was very important for the planning of the Apollo missions. In 1966, Boeing celebrated its 50th anniversary, and it did so by flying a replica of the old B&W biplane that had started it all so many years before. On a less celebratory note, Boeing would also land a contract to design a short-range attack missile, or SRAM, SRAM. This was a nuclear air-to-surface missile, so this was meant to be fired by bombers, that would penetrate enemy airspace, presumably after the surface-to-air missile capabilities of the enemy had been knocked out. And by enemy, everyone was essentially thinking the Soviet Union. This was still in the Cold War. So Boeing would first produce the missiles in 1972 and would continue to do so, uh, upgrading the line, making changes to it, but continuing producing these missiles until 1993, which was when the program was discontinued. In 1969, Boeing began production on the Lunar Rover vehicle. That's the moon car that astronauts would use to make some wicked donuts on the moon. I'm told they also used to do science and stuff up there, too. Not everything went without a hitch, however. Boeing had landed a contract to develop a supersonic transport, or SST, vehicle. This would be a passenger aircraft capable of breaking the sound barrier. In the 1960s, Boeing landed a contract to develop such an aircraft, and it would have been the first of a new family of aircraft in Boeing. It had the designation 2707. But the government scrapped the project in 1971, and Boeing canceled the development on the project. So what happened? Well, if you listen to my episode about the Concorde, you know that supersonic travel is challenging, not just from a technical standpoint— but also an economical one. The expense of developing and building the aircraft, of training crews and pilots of how to fly them and maintenance crews about how to maintain them, also just paying to fuel the darn things, all of that ends up being a considerable amount of money. On top of that, breaking the sound barrier means you produce more sonic booms than I do after a dinner at Taco Bell. So while Boeing was tackling the challenge with zeal, the general opinion in the industry was that it wasn't a good idea to pursue, and the general public was concerned about the environmental impact that such aircraft would have, so it it never got off the ground. Now when we come back, I'll quickly rush through the timeline, and then we'll talk about the 737 MAX. But first, let's take a quick break. So while the SST program went belly up, Boeing was continuing to not just work on space, military, and commercial air vehicles, but also to diversify. That involved creating alternate uses for Boeing-owned land, like turning some of it into farmland, for example. And this way they could put the land to work rather than just, you know, have it be land. And it also involved Boeing bidding for contracts to develop rapid rail transit technology. So at this point, Boeing is building components for spacecraft, for military aircraft, including helicopters, for commercial aircraft, for hydrofoil vehicles, and rail transit systems. Oh, and by the late 1970s, it was also building wind turbines for electricity production. So it was really getting into lots of stuff. One of the spacecraft Boeing created was the Mariner 10, which was a satellite that did flybys of Venus and Mercury, sending information back to us on Earth, which is pretty darn cool. 
and Boeing would contribute components to the space telescope Hubble as well. It would also continue designing and building missiles for the military, like the ALCM, or Air Launched Cruise Missile, which was designed to fire from a Boeing B-52 originally. Getting up to the 1980s now, Boeing would work on components for the boosters used by the space shuttle. It would also design and build major sections of the International Space Station, uh, which was an incredibly lucrative contract. A division called Boeing Computer Services would produce software to be used on the International Space Station. The company produced the Chinook military helicopter as well at this time. And Boeing was one of the companies working on the Osprey, which is a a vertical takeoff and landing aircraft that has a tilt-rotor assembly. You've probably seen pictures of these, if not one in person. Uh, It kind of looks like a helicopter and kind of looks like a propeller plane. And those tilt rotors actually can can angle to serve either as a helicopter or an airplane. So you can have it tilted so that they the uh, propellers are facing up and then do a vertical takeoff. And then you can start to uh, transition and tilt them in a more horizontal uh, wing position and then with the propellers being 90 degrees from that and turn it into a, essentially an airplane. I have to do a full episode about the Osprey at some point because it's really an odd – type of aircraft, but it's also incredibly expensive, and there was a lot of controversy around it as well. But there's still Osprey aircraft in service today. That's more than 30 years after Boeing first started working on them, so that's impressive. In the late 1980s, Boeing built an unmanned aerial vehicle called the Condor, and this is a big one. It has a wingspan measuring 205 feet, or 62 meters, and it has propellers for propulsion. It's not a jet uh, drone. It's it's a propeller drone. It looks kind of like a, a very wide, like almost an unrealistically wide propeller plane. It has an effective ceiling altitude of around 70,000 feet or 21,000 meters, and it can fly completely under computer control from takeoff to landing. Only two of them were ever built, and they were really meant for Boeing to kind of research effective strategies for unmanned aerial vehicles in general. They weren't intended necessarily to be production vehicles. And in fact, the military said there were very few practical applications because they would be far too vulnerable uh, by you know, to enemy attack if you were to try and use them as reconnaissance vehicles, for example. Boeing was involved in the design and production of the B-2 stealth bomber, which was a top secret vehicle at the time. I've talked about stealth technology in other episodes, so I'm not going to go into detail here. It largely involves creating surfaces with odd angles so that incoming radar waves don't reflect back to the radar stations. But uh, it gets a little more complicated than that, but I've talked about it in previous episodes. Boeing and McDonnell Douglas would get the nod from NASA to lead R&D efforts into the design of supersonic passenger aircraft again, this time with an eye to mitigate the challenges I mentioned earlier. This is called the High Speed Civil Transport Project. And occasionally you'll hear about various studies and ways to try and do things like reduce or eliminate the sonic boom as much as possible, which is tricky to do. It's hard to fool physics. Uh, You can decrease its effect. It's hard to get rid of it because air, you know, nature still abhors a vacuum. So do I. I hate vacuuming. In December 1996, Boeing merged with Rockwell Aerospace, and Rockwell became Boeing North American, and it operated as a subsidiary company. Also, in August 1997, Boeing would merge with its old competitor, McDonnell Douglas. 
Harry Stonecipher, who had been the CEO of McDonnell Douglas, would then come over to be the Boeing president, and the Boeing CEO and chairman, Phil Condit, would remain at his role at the top. On September 7th, 1997, the F-22 Raptor, which was based off an experimental aircraft from a couple of years earlier, would make its first flight. This is a high-speed stealth tactical fighter, and on that first flight, it climbed to an altitude of 15,000 feet in less than three minutes. Boeing was responsible for several parts of this aircraft, but it was working in a partnership with other companies, including Lockheed, on this particular project. In 1998, Boeing would change the name of the McDonnell Douglas MD-95 that I mentioned earlier. That one was the plane that had not yet gone into production when Boeing had merged with McDonnell Douglas, and the new name was the 717. So now it's the Boeing 717. In 99, Boeing landed a $1.6 billion contract to serve as the lead systems integrator for the National Missile Defense Program. And there's a ton of other odds and ends we could cover, like the Joint Helmet Mounted Queuing System, or the Joint Direct Attack Munition, or JDAM platform, or the Rock and Roll satellites that Boeing produced for XM Satellite Radio, or the Space Launch Complex at Cape Canaveral, not to mention the various missiles and bombs and aircraft that Boeing has worked on since 2000 for the United States and other countries, but I'm running out of time, and we still need to talk about the 737 MAX. Boeing announced this particular generation of its 737 back in 2011. And they're very similar in many ways in capacity to early generations of the 737, but in other ways, they're very different. The 737 MAX aircraft received certification in 2017, stating the aircraft was suitable to enter into service. But in October 2018, a 737 MAX 8 operated by Lion Air jet uh, crashed into the Java Sea off the coast of Indonesia less than 20 minutes after it had taken off with all aboard lost. The cause appeared to be a problem with the flight control system. More on that in a moment. On March 10th, 2019, an Ethiopian Airlines flight, also a 737 MAX 8, crashed less than 10 minutes after it had taken off from Addis Ababa. There were no survivors in that crash either. Investigations are ongoing as of the recording of this podcast, but in any case, the global fleet of 737 MAX aircraft is currently grounded and may continue to be so for the rest of 2019, and Boeing has stated that it may soon need to slow or even halt production on the aircraft. So what actually happened? Well, it's premature to say everything, but we have some ideas. Now, Boeing has maintained that the aircraft were designed properly and they were operating properly, but that crews were not following the correct procedures as indicated by the flight manual. Pilots have stated that they were not adequately informed of a new type of software that was incorporated into the flight control system that may have played a part in these accidents. So what's going on? Well, first, it's helpful to know that the 737 MAX is different from earlier 737 aircraft in its construction. The engines are different from earlier 737 uh, uh, aircraft, and they are placed further forward and higher up on the fuselage. And that changes the balance of the aircraft. It actually creates a tendency for the 737's nose to start pointing upward. It starts to pitch up when it's traveling at lower speeds. And this, in turn, can lead to engines stalling out. They don't get enough air in them, 
and then they stall, and then you're in a real dangerous situation. And this is where the software comes in. The software is called the Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System, or MCAS. And the software detects when the aircraft's nose is pointed upward at lower speeds. It has sensors to uh, detect the angle of attack. And if the angle of attack is too great, it sends a command to the horizontal stabilizers that are at the tail of the plane. The stabilizers tilt so that the aircraft will level out, which supplies the air the engines need for continuous operation without stalling. So that's important. So in the case where this aircraft is slowing down and it's just naturally the nose is creeping up, this computer system is supposed to uh, account for that. In the Lion Air crash, here's what seems to have happened. The MCAS incorrectly detected that the nose of the aircraft was pointed too far upward and the engines would be in danger of stalling. So it sent the command to the horizontal stabilizers, which tilted and that caused the aircraft's nose to pitch downward, sending the aircraft into a dive. And the crew were unable to stop this malfunction or correct for it, and the plane crashed. The same thing may have happened with the Ethiopian Airlines crash, but that investigation is ongoing as of the recording of this show. Now, I have seen several aviation industry experts say that a big part of the issue is that the 737 MAX is different enough from earlier 737 models, like the 737NG, that it should necessitate an entirely new, distinct, and thorough pilot training program, and that a lot of airlines had more casual training programs, like the kind you could complete in an hour on a tablet. So that could be a problem that might require much more extensive training for pilots so they can familiarize themselves with the changes in the 737 MAX before piloting the newer aircraft. In addition, newspapers like the New York Times have investigated the FAA and have come to the conclusion that that agency is not well enough equipped to perform adequate testing and certification procedures on aircraft in general, which allows the possibility of malfunctions and mistakes to make their way through the certification process because there's just not enough funding and expertise to detect all of these. And that means you could have potentially tragic consequences. Boeing, for its part, began working on a software patch to address problems with the MCAS pretty much immediately. And this was made more difficult, the company said, because its simulators were unable to replicate the problems that the actual production aircraft were experiencing. But the updated software, which puts measures into place to prevent the MCAS system from activating prematurely, has been completed. And as I record this episode, it's essentially awaiting FAA certification for distribution. So in other words, the company says that they found a fix for the issue, and it just has to make sure that the certification um, agrees and that they can then distribute it to all the aircraft. As I record this, the future of the 737 MAX is in doubt. There's the possibility that Boeing might have to scrap production on that jet entirely. There are hundreds of outstanding orders that could be canceled. It's possible that airlines would rather look at alternatives than stick with the 737 MAX, even with software updates and training programs to help fix these previous problems, because now the 737 MAX has a very negative association with it, and so it's hard to get away from that. It's hard to tell passengers, no, no, everything's fine now. Um, if Especially with the amount of reporting that has happened on this issue, uh, it, it, I 
think it's reasonable to say that a lot of people would have reservations about getting on that type of plane, uh, even if they were told that things had been worked out since the accidents. It's an ugly thing to see it happen. I mean, obviously, it's a tragedy, and it's terrible that people lost their lives in this. Uh, It's also frustrating to see the blame game going around. Uh, I don't honestly know, ultimately, who is to blame. Boeing says that they felt the flying manual had all the information needed to deal with these kind of situations. Pilots say they weren't even really told about the MCAS uh, software on the flying control system. I don't know who to believe. Uh, I just know it is a tragedy and that uh, things have to be fixed for people to have at least the confidence that these aircraft can go back into service safely. And that concludes our little series on Boeing. As I said, I skipped over a ton of stuff in this episode, and I apologize for that if you had a favorite Boeing story that I didn't get to. But if you do have things you would like me to talk about, whether it's about Boeing or anything else, get in touch with me. You can send me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can pop on over to our website. That's techstuffpodcast.com. You're going to find an archive of all of our old episodes. You'll find links to where we are on social media. You'll also find a link to our online store where every purchase you make goes to help the show. We greatly appreciate it. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 